How do we keep feeding a growing population while, at the same time, reversing climate change and regenerating life on Earth? That is such a key question, and the great news is that there are so many promising solutions out there. I decided to start this podcast because I was tired of hearing about how bad things are, and I wanted to instead focus on how good things could be. This episode was made in partnership with Soul Capital. I'm your host, Raphael, and this is the Deep Seed Podcast. Regenerative agriculture is going to be a central topic to this podcast. And since this is one of the very first episodes, I wanted to talk to someone who could help me better understand the basics. What is regenerative agriculture and how does it differ from conventional agriculture? What are the key principles in farming practices and how do they impact the life of soils and livelihood of farmers? That's why I'm today at Hyde Farm in Maidenhead, just west of London, in the company of Andrew Randall. Hi, Andrew, and thanks a lot for having me here and being one of the very first guests on the podcast. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for asking me to be involved. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to uh, talk about these topics. Could you start by introducing yourself, but without talking about your profession just yet? Okay. So I, I'm Andrew Randall. I, um, I'm 47. I live um, in the southeast of the United Kingdom, so just near a town called Maidenhead. Uh, we're about 30 miles west of London. I, my family life, I'm, I'm married to, to my wife, Jenny. Uh, I have two children, George and Isla, um, and um, passionate about farming. In my spare time, I enjoy motorsports and other, and other country pursuits. Um, yeah. And could you tell us about your journey as a farmer? As a farmer, so I suppose it all started back in my childhood. Uh, I'm very lucky to be born into a farming family. Um, and so I'm the, the third generation to be involved in this business. Um, but um, so, so from a very early age, I, I enjoyed getting involved in the farm and helping my father. Um, and um, at that time, we had, we had cows as well as crops. Uh, and so quite a lot of my youth was spent um, helping with the livestock. I then got um, as much experience as possible uh, on uh, um, farms of my relations, uh, learning about sheep and lambing and local farms where I helped out with turkeys and things like that. Um, after I finished school, I had a year out traveling and I looked at farming in other parts of the world and um, did did some work in both Australia uh, on a dairy farm and New Zealand on mixed livestock farms and arable farms, uh, just trying to build up my uh, experience all the time. When I finished that year, I then went to university in Newcastle in the, in the northeast of England, and I studied a degree in, in agriculture um, with, with farm business management. Uh, so that, that was three years, and then I uh, left there and got my first job up in Scotland, uh, which was managing an estate which had uh, dairy cows, sheep, and arable cropping as well. Uh, and I was there for almost six years before I um, came back down to, to join the family business. And that was back in 2005. So, so I've been here now uh, almost 20 years being involved here uh, alongside my father uh, and then sort of increasingly t taking over to, to where I am today, sort of running the, the, running the whole business. And where we are today, it's uh, 
uh, your farm, Hyde Farm. Yeah. Could you maybe give us a, a little overview of your operation? Sure. At our core is, is a farming business based around uh, arable cropping. But I should sort of mention the rest of the business. So, so we, um, we view ourselves as a, as a rural business, and my job really is to make the most of all of our rural assets. So at the core is very much arable farming. Um, I mentioned we had a history of dairy farming, and if you go back long enough, we, we had a milk ground serving milk to the, to the local towns. But uh, yes, for the last 20 years, uh, 25 years almost, it, it's just been um, arable crops. Alongside that, we have sort of increasing environmental um work on the farm um, we have some renewable energy we have some residential prop- property letting we have some commercial property letting um, and in terms of the of the sort of non-farmed area we're just constantly looking at other ways to derive income from the land um, sort of hiring it out for events or uh, we have a model aeroplane club flying planes here and uh, we have phone masts and just just anything really just to to make the most of our assets so so my time is probably spent about half farming and and half managing the rest of the business right so you've been diversifying your income sources a lot is that a, like economic necessity is it um partly yes yeah i suppose that's the main driver indeed yeah we're we're, we're not huge so we don't have brilliant economies of scale. Uh, our, our arable operation now covers um, about 320 hectares, which is sort of just an, just about enough to justify doing it ourselves and, uh, and investing in our own equipment, etc. But partly because of where we are, we do have lots of other opportunities. Uh, we are very accessible. There's a good road network near us. And we have a, a big population being so close to London and, and the fact that just you know most of the uk is 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 heavily populated but even more so down here in the southeast of the country so then we have good demand for for example for the property letting and and trying to do other other bits and pieces so it just makes good business sense in terms of the longevity of our business and you know third generation absolutely looking to pass it on to my children and and hopefully them to theirs and so you know the more more we can we can grow and uh improve what we're doing the the better you mentioned earlier you had uh, children is it your your wish that they they take over the farm uh, one day i my main focus is just to give them that opportunity to do so um there's there's no expectation uh necessarily um but um ho- hopefully that at some point preferably after they've been away to to explore and and try other things they will uh like the idea of coming back and and and, and taking over an element of the business but w- whether it's the pure farming or whether it's some of the other things um who who knows but um they're both quite keen their age the, my son George is 13 and Ida is 10 and George inevitably is a enthusiastic young young boy just like I was who loves the machinery and the tractors and the driving and all that sort of thing so that's a great start and he's had some livestock of his own he keeps sheep and sheep and pigs so so that's 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 all good um and and Isla's uh Isla's sort of latching onto it as well so yeah we'll uh, we'll watch this space on your website there's a tagline that says healthy soil equals healthy plants equals healthy animals equals healthy food equals healthy people equals healthy planet <laughs> could you tell us what this means i can't remember where i stole that uh, tagline but it just resonated and and i maybe added a little bit to it but um 
it's sort of it's very logically based i think in terms of we know as human beings the healthier we are the more we thrive um and so it's really the same in terms of if our farming system if we make sure that every piece of it is optimized then um, we're probably going to get the best results. So, so we very much start with focusing on on getting our soil as healthy as possible. That in turn means that the plants are going to thrive. They're going to be more resilient to pests and diseases. Um, they're going to provide the nutrition, for example, to grazing animals, which in turn are going to produce meat, which should be as as good as possible. Uh, and so on and so forth. So then the people eat this quality food, this nutrient-dense food, and thrive on it. Um, and and hopefully that culminates in in a thriving population and, and as healthy a planet as possible. Right. Um, and I noticed that the soil soil health is really uh, at the start of the this chain of equals. And so if the soil health isn't there, then the whole uh, rest of the chain falls apart. Indeed, indeed. Yes, no, it is. It is fundamental to, well, I suppose it's fundamental to life on earth, really. If we, if we don't have soil that can, can sustain a uh, plant and, and, and consequently animal life, then, uh, then we're going to be struggling. And I suppose we've seen that in certain areas of the world where things have gone off the rails and the, and the balance has been upset and, um, and the capacity to, to produce food and sustain life has, has been severely compromised. But um, we seem to have latched on to, the, to where we've gone wrong and, and lessons have been learnt. And, you know, it's great to see and be part of this sort of resurgent um, movement to um, counteract any damage that's been done and, and hopefully move things forward. Um, at one point, it was all about sustainability, and now it's sort of gone to the next level of trying to be regenerational to, to actually build and build and improve things, which um, has to be the right way forward. How do you define uh, soil health and how do you measure it? We have to look at um, what a soil is meant to do and... Um, so a healthy soil is going to be well structured, have um, particles that are are able to to latch on and, and keep hold of nutrients, and um, have a sort of symbiotic relationship with the with the plants that are growing within them. They're going to um, retain moisture, which is which is crucial, especially in our part of the world where we we suffer from lack of rainfall periodically. And they're, and they're going to hold nutrients and, and minimize runoff and minimize pollution with nutrients going back into into rivers and watercourses and back into the sea and, and all the pollution incidents that that can cause. Um, the soil health is going to have uh, the right proportions of air, um, the drainage channels, and so on and so forth. Um, and, and, and generally hosting a good sort of... Um, community of all all the different organisms which which play an important role in um well its health and consequently plant health there's this there's one thing that you said that kind of surprised me here is that you said uh, that in this part of the world you're lacking rainfall we're in england and <laughs> england is quite famous for having a lot of rain uh, is is there something i'm missing um well yes i mean we would consider ourselves in a drier part of the country the further west you go, uh, the wetter it gets. And it's certainly noticeable, I would say, in my lifetime that as much as our annual rainfall 
is not particularly changing. The um, distribution of it is, or, or more... More importantly, it's um, it's less consistent and more unpredictable, and so we seem to suffer longer periods of either very dry or very wet. Uh, you know, both of which can be problematic. But um, you know, the the biggest threat is probably having a very dry period at a crucial time of year, and we're seeing that more and more in terms of sort of April, May, June. We can be quite deficient, which which really uh, impacts on on plant growth. Um, you know, at the very important time when they're creating their yield or fulfilling their yield potential. And um, it, it, it can be quite scary and have a huge economic impact on us. So um, so when we sort of moved to using the methods that we're currently using, th- that was really the main driver was, was um, to improve the soil quality, soil health, and particularly the moisture retention capabilities of our soil in this part of the world. One of the leading figures of the regenerative movement is a, an American a farmer called Gabe Brown. And I read his book, Dirt to Soil, which um, is a real goldmine of information about regenerative farming. Uh, in his book, he, he identifies six key principles. And since I would like this episode to be an introduction to regenerative agriculture for people who are new to this topic, I thought it would be a good idea to structure the conversation around those six key principles sure. and go um, through them one by one. Mm-hmm. The first principle is to avoid as much as possible mechanical disturbance. In other words, uh, tillage. So, yeah, so so tillage or other people might know it as cultivations and traditionally would be associated with implements like plows and tined cultivators or disc cultivators and... Um, It's ordinarily involved um, engaging the metal into the soil to to probably to a depth of up to 10 inches or so. Um, and the benefits of that have been in incorporating the previous year's residue, in perhaps killing and burying weeds, burying weed seeds to a depth where they struggle to to grow during the next growing season to so they don't compete with the crop. Um, it's also created a tilth, just um, the smaller soil particles which um, can settle around the seed to create the sort of vital seed to soil contact for that seed to germinate and thrive. And so it's historically been, you know, one of the um, the, the, the only ways really to begin the plant growth process. Um, particularly historically in the absence of, of chemicals that, for example, could kill the weeds to, to avoid the competition. Um, whereas more recently, we do have that tool in our armory. We have been able to use chemical control of weeds. And so, you know, that removes one element of having to um, cultivate or, or use tillage systems. But um, so it, it, Sorry, but it, it seems to be very useful and it has a lot of benefits and most farmers around the world do this. Um, so why are um, regenerative farmers saying more and more that uh, tilling is, is problematic for soil health? Um, so there's just a, a much greater understanding of, of um, the uh, soil's requirements in order for it to thrive. So, for, for, for example, uh, we have a much, much bigger appreciation of worms and, and the role that they play in um, recycling nutrients, creating massive drainage channels, um, taking, um, moving uh, soil and, and nutrients through the profile. 
and not dissimilarly plant roots themselves are obviously creating channels where the root grows uh, to translocate moisture and, and nutrients from the soil to the plant and so they are growing annually let's say uh, and, and producing a, a channel through the soil and so if you then imagine that you're going in with a with a big tractor and a cultivator and you're just bursting the soil wide open and so you're immediately removing all these lovely channels that the worms and the plant roots have created which you know it seems on the face of it a, a massive waste because you know they've spent a year creating these these useful systems and then they're just sort of um, obliterated and, and and everything's reset um not only that the nature of of um bursting it open is burning carbon and, and releasing carbon dioxide and effectively you know burning unnecessarily burning uh, organic matter which is you know very key to, to soil health and, and the nutrient cycle etc so um, that's why we we are looking to move away from from disturbing the soil as much as we can so if I understand correctly it has a lot of very interesting short-term benefits when trying to grow a crop but it has a lot of uh, issues especially in the long term in terms of building the health of the soil and the amount of carbon in the soil and uh, the microbiology in the soil and the macrobiology, the, the, the worms and so on. So it's kind of a, a trade-off between short-term uh, gain and long-term uh, resilience and fertility. That's a, yes, that's a very good summary. Um, one of the most obvious short-term gains is you mineralize some nitrogen. So it always looks like you've got a lovely, healthy crop when you've used cultivations. But um, in, you know, in actual fact, that's a sort of fairly short-lived um, symptom which um, you know we, we can we can cope without and it's better to be uh, more think more long term and not um, you know and wean ourselves off that system so if the idea is to over time reduce your dependence on tillage but you still need to make sure that you have a productive crop during that transition how do you go about that um, so it probably really comes back to the to the main characteristics of soil health and um, creating an environment which is as healthy as possible before you start withdrawing these artificial methods of of managing some of those um, characteristics. It, historically, you would use cultivation for for, for drainage and and um, things like that. Whereas if you are careful in the years leading up to you removing, um, you know, the, the direct processes of, of cultivation, then um, hopefully the soil has had time to build up a, a resilience, build up the worm channels, build up the root channels, and, and just be in a much better state to, to cope when, when you're not cultivating it. Um, hopefully sort of leaving organic matter on the top and that being recycled begins to, to create a, a healthier upper layer with, with a good crumb structure uh, and more than adequate for you to put a slot in with a with a direct drill to, to plant the seed, etc. Um, and, and then in the knowledge that you've already got these worm channels and these root channels below it, it should cope with excess rain and, and things like that. And the system just begins to... to to evolve and get going and I think some soils are diff more difficult to, um, uh, to start the process on, perhaps those which lack uh, natural structure um, but um, you know it, it, it's not impossible and it's been proven time and again that you can pretty much do it on, on, on most soils and um, you know happily that's what we, we found here. And what has been your personal experience with this? 
So we, we began experimenting in 2009, 2010, and we, we hired a couple of different drills and, and we used them on areas where we knew the soil health was quite good, the structure was good. And, you know, it wasn't all perfect, but, um, there were a few downfalls, but we, we, we learnt what they were. And then in 2011, we invested in both a disc drill and a tine drill. And, and we basically stopped cultivating overnight effectively. Could you just quickly explain what these two types of drills are? Sure. Well, uh, so a disc drill would be um, traditionally what you would associate with, with no-till farming. It is very low disturbance. Um, it is literally cutting a slot in in the soil so for a sort of a conventional cereal grain it'll be about one and a half to two inches deep uh, and it's placing the seed in and then a following wheel will just sort of fold you know almost zip it back up if set up correctly you might have difficulty in in seeing that the field has been planted that it's been drilled uh, which is the sort of holy grail that's what you want you know that you haven't um upset those drainage channels you haven't burst open the soil and released any carbon dioxide you and you haven't almost as importantly disturbed soil and disturbed weed seeds that are going to start growing at the same time that your intended crop is starting to grow so so it's got a lot a lot going for it um, the alternative to a disc is a tine. So instead of, of your of your round disc, it is just a um, more or less vertical piece of metal that is um, creating a slot in the soil. Just by its nature of being pulled through, it's going to be slightly more disruptive and burst the uh, burst the soil open more and create more disturbance. But if set up correctly, can can still be a very valid way of of uh, establishing a crop with without cultivation and and you know minimizing all those negative um, impacts. We have both, which is a little bit of a luxury, but uh, they both have their advantages. A disc is far better at uh, planting in um, in into other crops, for example. Um, however, <clears throat> at least half of our rotation involves planting into heavy heavy residue of chopped straw, chopped um, oilseed, rape, canola and bean horn. And um, we need to push that trash out of the way, particularly the white straw from, from cereal crops. So the tine goes through, makes a path, pushes the residue to the side, plants the seed uh, into pure soil rather than a mixture of soil and straw. And it just gives it a, a much better chance of germinating and establishing strongly without the impact of compromised seed to soil contact or the compromises of residues from the rotting straw um, um, in, impacting the, the root zone. I see. Uh, and have you been successful with these experiments? Uh, are you still tilling today? No, 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 not at all. No, not, like I say, we, we stopped tilling 12, 13 years ago. So, Completely? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we just use one either one of these drills. The second principle is to avoid as much as possible chemical disturbance. Uh, in other words, avoiding the use of synthetic fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, and so on. Um, it seems obvious to most people, me included, before I learned uh, about this topic, that fertilizers will boost the growth of plants. Herbicides will kill weeds you don't you don't want on your uh, production, and uh, pesticides will kill the insects that are problematic to your to your plants. Um, and farmers obviously use these three uh, chemicals 
to improve their productivity. So what is the problem? Well, the, pro the problem is it's quite hard to do without them. Uh, and the industry has benefited from the sort of industrial revolution and, and uh, improvements in, in um, um, the availability of artificial fertilizers and pesticides. Um, and, and we've, um, you know, had, had good sustainable businesses off the back of them. But we've reached a point where it's, it's, it's gone a bit too far. And A, they're very expensive. And, and B, we recognize that we're probably creating some of the, some of our own problems. So if you're applying too much nitrogen, you're getting lots of lush growth. That lush growth is more susceptible to, um, f fungal attack or, or even, um, you know, pest attack, aphid attack, etc. Um, and so we want to, to scale it back as much as we can. Um, and it's not just the sort of direct effects on the plant, it's, it's, it's the, um, the impact on the interactions within the soil itself. And it's just sort of upsetting the balance. So um, we are, are beginning to scale back, you know, we, we, we are self-confessed conventional farmers we're not organic or anything like that we couldn't we we would really struggle to do our system in, in organic the biggest stumbling block would be would be the lack of uh, glyphosate use which is you know a key element of how we control our weeds and so so instead we sort of try and um, minimize the disadvantages of using those chemicals by uh, supplementing um, those sprays with extra sugars and things like that so that the impact on the soil biology isn't quite as great as it might have been if, if we just ignored the problem. Is there um, uh, a world in a, in a few years time where it's actually possible to have a successful farming operation without tilling and without using any chemicals? Or do you, do you find it impossible? Um, I'm not saying it can't be done. And there's some amazing pioneers out there who, who I try and keep an eye on as best I can, who, who really are sort of pushing the boundaries and making things work. I don't know quite how consistently and how, well, consistently economically that is. Um, Yeah, we've got a lot more work to do before we can get anywhere near that. Uh, as I said, one of the biggest stumbling blocks is 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 perhaps the inability to control weeds. But you know, we're we're seeing more and more technology which potentially can help us with that, and um, robotic mechanical weeders that are accurate enough to um, you know consider the idea that it might be possible longer term. Um, so so never say never, and I think it's probably where we need to be trying to get to. I have a very small favor to ask. On the app that you're using right now to listen to this podcast, if you could just click on the Deep Seat page and hit the follow button, that would be really helpful for me and for the podcast. Thank you so much. The third and fourth principle, in my view, are directly related. One is to never let the soil bare, and the other is to always have a living root in the soil. Um, what can you tell us about this? How do you cover the soil and why so um I, i sometimes think about our farm as a big solar panel really its job really is to intercept sunlight to to grow plants um and so in this part of the world we haven't got the climate to be producing two cash crops a year which you might get away with in a in a warmer wetter climate 
Um, and so we are, we're only really planting and harvesting one cash crop. And so, for example, um, we we have a rotation of, of wheat followed by canola, followed by wheat, followed by spring oats, followed by another crop of wheat. And then eventually, lastly, in the sixth year, it's spring beans. So, so for the wheat, we planted in October, we harvest it in August, and there's a there's no, normally a small window before we plant the next crop. And so it might be four or five weeks, which just isn't enough time to justify planting a cover crop. And so we don't. Uh, but where we're planting a spring crop afterwards, we, we plant a cover crop. So as soon as the combine leaves the field, we 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 go in with a drill again and plant a crop which is purely there to it'll never see a combine it won't be harvested in the in the conventional sense sorry what's a combine a combine harvester uh for gathering the crop in so uh, yes so so two years and six we we can justify planting a cover crop uh and so in front of the oats, we, we plant um, a mixture of species, which are um, things like peas, sunflowers, linseed, buckwheat, uh, and, and one or two other things. And the idea is that they, uh, they have different characteristics in their terms of their growth habits. So some of them have long roots, some of them have sort of flowery, shallow roots which are great for creating soil tilth, whilst the longer ones are sort of good at breaking up any compaction and going a bit deeper for for nutrients and, and, and moisture. And and they have different heights above ground, so you've got a sort of full canopy. And, you know, in a good year, like like or in a mild autumn like we just had, then a lot of them will flower and provide a sort of good habitat for, for pollinators. And and all the while, they are uh, harvesting all the sunlight that would otherwise just fall on bare ground and um and they're capturing and holding a huge amount of nutrients as well so in our um, um experiments we've um harvested for example a meter square of the above ground um biomass and uh, analyzed that to see how much nitrogen and particularly potash it's holding and um you know it really does capture and hold an enormous amount of ingredients to the extent that we're becoming more and more confident about scaling back the inputs that we put on the following following crops in the spring because we know that they've held onto it. It hasn't washed out the soil into the rivers and it should be there on the whole to feed into the next crop. Right, so it's capturing all of this nutrition. Mm-hmm. It's using sunlight. Mm-hmm. It's protecting the ground. Yeah. And so when you you come in to plant your cash crop in a, in spring, there's more nutrition and soil is in better exactly. state and better structure. Exactly that. You um, imagine if if you didn't have a crop growing and and there's nothing sort of supporting it, the, all the winter rainfall would just sort of compact the ground eventually, ultimately, and and it would just sort of slump and the air would start to go out of it and it'd just be lifeless. You're not sort of giving the the worms and all the other microorganisms food. You know the the roots aren't aren't or the plants aren't photosynthesizing and the roots aren't exuding uh, all, all the goodness that comes from that and so the whole system sort of grounds grinds to a halt um which is just a 
a wasted opportunity really we're we're constantly trying to improve our soil and so if we have blank periods then we're we're going backwards really mm. i actually heard someone use a metaphor in a podcast i listened to recently and to be fair i don't i don't remember who said that but um, they said it's like having property in london and not renting it out for five months <laughs> out of the year yeah. um yeah. so it sounds like a, a missed opportunity so why are so many farmers uh, not doing it um i suppose um it depends on your on your cropping setup um you know before we went to this more diverse crop rotation of, of a six year rotation we were just growing two years of wheat and then oilseed rape and they were all planted in the winter and so on the whole i suppose you know they were kind of their own cover crop but they were monocultures they were single crops they didn't have the diversity that we put into our uh, cover crops with those different root lengths and different plant characteristics um so i don't know part of it is educating people to see the benefits they're not cost free you know the seed is quite expensive and becoming more expensive as more people are doing it and and the industry is sort of latching on to trying to 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 get value out of it and, and increasing margins on the, on the seed for example you've obviously got the cost of planting it um but you know we through our own experiments and calculations are confident that um um it's worth it and so, so there's no reason not to and there's increasingly more incentives to do it with with um government payments meant to be coming in this year for that kind of thing um and also we are now finding it's having an impact on our on our um carbon pavements which we'll probably come on to yes um and do you harvest your own seeds isn't there a business opportunity there to harvest seeds and to sell them if they're so valuable um probably yes we we've done a bit of the species that we can we can confidently grow some of them are a bit more specialist and in reality by the time you know we've we've attempted to do it and and cleaned it up without you know if you produce a sort of weedy seed crop with with other foreign seed in it it's it's probably going to end you you know end up in more trouble than it's worth and so it's sort of recognizing your strengths and uh, and playing to them but yes there's certainly uh corners to be cut and 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 advantages to be had if 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 you think about it hard enough yeah right um so just to to kind of recap this whole uh covering the soil and having a living root in the soil uh, topic. Mm -hmm. um, covering it up, the goal is to protect it from what from rainfall, from... Indeed, uh, covering up. It's not just planting a cover crop. It's also what you're doing with the residues from the previous crop that you've harvested. And so um, we no longer bale the straw and take it off the field. It's all chopped at the back of the combine harvester and spread out across the full width of the field to to, to create a layer of mulch effectively. Okay, so the, the residue used to remove it outside it, of the field. We used to remove it and either sell it or, or use it in our historical livestock enterprise for mm. either animal feed or animal bedding. And then, yes, by and large, it would have effectively been recycled, you know, turned into to farmyard manure, and then it would have been able to come back and been spread on the field. But in the absence of a of an adequate livestock enterprise, um, we still see the benefit in in just leaving it there. But leaving it, the important thing is leaving it on the surface. 
if we happen to chop the straw in the past when we were still using cultivation and then you plough it under, the danger is you're sort of ploughing it under to about eight inches into a sort of fairly anaerobic environment where it, it, it became very hard for for it to be broken down and um and you know quite often you would go back and plow it up the, the following year and yes it would look slightly discolored and everything but it's it really it, it, it hadn't changed a lot and so so you know you hadn't gained any real benefit from it whereas if we leave it on the top um the this is where the worms do a fantastic job uh, and they're fascinating to watch that you can see them coming up they sort of circle around the residue and begin pulling it back into their burrows where where they sort of where they begin the recycling process and that keeps all that goodness sort of in the right part of the soil profile uh you know and until they've achieved that whole process i suppose it's also if, you know, whilst your your cover crop is establishing and getting going and creating a canopy, until that happens, your your soil is still quite vulnerable to heavy rainfall events. And so, if you've got a nice cover of straw, a mat of and a mulch of straw, then uh, it's gonna it's gonna take away the intensity of heavy rainfall, you know, bouncing off the surface and um, compacting that that surface layer, for example. The fifth principle is to increase diversity. Uh, Gabe Brown in the book says. The vast majority of producers focus only on the potential profit a particular crop may bring them that year. They do not look at the ecological capital that diversity builds. Why is diversity so important to the health of soils and ecosystems? <laughs> um, it's just, it's about balance really, isn't it? It's, um, it's finding and allowing that natural balance to occur which is why um, you know we're starting to think harder about the multi-species cover crops the planting two crops at once uh, which might have different advantages and symbiotic effects so you, you do that sometimes planting two crops at once we're, we're just starting to experiment uh, so you know we are probably behind the curve where i see a lot of people being quite adventurous in that in that light um All we've done to date is, is, is plant um, extra crops alongside our, our canola just to try and um, discourage the, the, the problems that we have with an insect called flea beetle uh, and it just sort of helps distract them a little bit. We principally used a, a, a species called buckwheat, but uh, we've also used some clover, which, uh, for example, you know, is a legume and, and can fix nitrogen which in turn, you know, should have a, a good knock-on effect uh, to, to, the, to the growing cash crop, the canola. So there's lots of things to look at there. But uh, we're not as yet, all of those would have been killed before harvest. So we're not ever taking two crops off the field at once and then, you know, two seeds in, in the same harvesting operation. We, we haven't got that far. People, people are and they're coming up with very clever ways of separating them when they get them back into the, into the shed. Um, and, and I think, you know, on the whole, they're seeing that um, as much as you're getting reduced yields, their combined yield is greater than you would have got from your, from your monocrop. So um, it's potentially something we, we all ought to be looking at. How did you uh, increase diversity on your farm and how did it work for, for you? Overall, I've talked about our rotation and how we've gone from basically only growing two crops to growing um four different crops and the cover crops so you know that's introduced a lot of diversity over the six-year rotation 
and then yes and then experimenting with with some intercropping and and, and planting uh these extra crops at the rate but yes that's that's as far as we've got really any um plans for trying new experiments in terms of bringing extra diversity Yes, yeah, there's probably a lot to be had from the legumes and the free nitrogen that they can provide. And so we we need to be uh, exploring more with with them with well a variety of crops. I mean, the one one of the things a lot of people talk about is having a permanent clover understory and being able to manage that and plant into it and using things like interrow mowers to to keep on top of the clover and allow the the the, the cash crop to to um Uh, compete adequately but uh, yes you know uh, watch this space i keep hearing about legumes and their uh, like their amazing potential mm. uh, because of the way um, they have this symbiosis with bacteria in the soil that captures nitrogen and therefore builds the fertility of the soil naturally um So what's stopping farmers from using more of them? Uh, is there like a supply chain issue? Is there not, not enough of a demand for it? Or is it more complicated than it sounds to add more legumes to the rotation? At the end of the day, I suppose a lot of it comes down to profitability. And, um, you know, the main legume that we grow, well, the only one we grow as a cash crop is the field beans, which fix their own nitrogen. And, you know, we see that as an important one year and six in in uh, having a legume, having that natural nitrogen provided, hopefully having a um, uh, some left over for the following crop in the autumn to help get it away and therefore being able to use less nitrogen in the following wheat crop. Um, but um, I suppose you see them more frequently in proper organic farming where they are recognized as being a fantastic fertility builder where you know you might have two or three years of a of a grass clovey lay uh, and then um and and that'll be utilized presumably by livestock and and you will have an income from that livestock before you then plant your your cereal crops for example to really capitalize on what's been built up over the last three years but um And, and, you know, and there are other options coming in now whereby some of the um, government incentivized schemes are allowing you to plant these these legume lays and which will definitely help justify them because without that support, it was hard to actually get a, a true income out of that year. And, and it was probably not enough of a benefit in the following year to make it stack up economically. When you say allow, are they actually helping financially? Or yes, yeah, no? yeah. It's a it's an option within some of the environmental schemes that have been introduced in recent years, and increasingly so. It looks like they are sort of heading more down that route. What do you think about the those recent schemes? Is there interesting ones that you you've been looking at? And do you think that the government is going in the right direction in uh, incentivizing farmers to change their practices? Um, so we we've been doing various environmental schemes, government-backed environmental schemes for the last 15 years or more, and um, they've been they've been very specific in terms of separate to our, our the crops that we grow. It's been providing uh, grass and flower margins down the edge of fields and and planting crops to produce seed for small birds in the winter, things like that, which have worked well with our system. And you know, and they've had a, an impact on our on our main field areas, courtesy of of where they've been positioned and and um, you know, for example, pollinators in the in the flower margins going into the field and 
and benef- you know beneficial um, predators taking out uh, aphids and things like that. But the, the the big change more recent in the last couple of years has has been more focused on how to really integrate um, beneficial sort of environmental practices into the arable system itself. And so we were in a scheme last year which uh, did pay us some money to plant cover crops um, and things like that and, and, and just be far more focused on on soil health. Um, they've now just changed the whole system again uh, and there's a bit more of the same and there's other... Um, other new things coming this year, which will be even better for, for the system that we use, for example. So they're obviously trying to incentivize people to think more regeneratively and, and go down that route. And at the end of the day, it's supported effectively by, by public money um, and it's meant to be delivering public good, uh, which it hopefully will because their food will be produced more responsibly arguably uh in a in a hopefully a overall a less polluting more sustainable more regenerative manner uh and so you know i'm i'm happy that they're they're heading in that direction the last principle is to integrate animals into the system do you use animals on your farm and if so can you explain their role and benefits to soil health we We only have a small involvement in animals. Um, so um, during those two years out of six where we have a cover crop, we um, have a neighbor who, who owns sheep who, who brings them in to graze off the cover crops. So that's how we terminate and, and, and finish the cover crop cycle. I mean, we have different options there. We could either uh, kill the cover crops off with, with glyphosate, which is, which is our least preferred option, um or we can use sheep like like we prefer to so we like the fact that, that it's introducing an animal they're coming in they're bringing sort of you know different different microbes with them and they're, they're processing the stuff they're putting muck, muck back on the ground which is you know being incorporated into the soil the ne- they don't eat all of it they're they're trampling a lot of it in which is again sort of introducing or incorporating some of that um, organic matter and plant fiber into the into the top of the soil um and so you know it's just a different approach and i just it's hard to quantify but um i i'm sure as we see from you know agriculture over the you know last last few centuries it's it's very much been about uh, a mixture of livestock and and crops you know working together to for, for the best outcome and so i like i like the fact that we have them um arguably we 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 could have more and and it's something we're sort of constantly looking at um but so yes who knows we might so we might go further down that route in the future What would be your advice for farmers listening to this podcast who might be interested in adopting more regenerative practices? I would just emphasize the the benefits that we've seen really, which has been um I didn't really touch on it before, but you know, we've seen quite big savings in in time uh, and therefore money um and and you know, diesel wearing metal because we're not using tillage anymore. It takes a bit more management input and you mustn't underestimate that. You've got to be on the ball 
you know, not not just that day, but really thinking ahead and making sure you've got that residue right so it's not an embarrassment when you put the planter in the field and try and drill through it and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, it, but, but you know, all of that together is, 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 is very rewarding. Uh, so we haven't seen any uh, yield penalty. Uh, all we've seen really is, is benefits by uh, reducing the time involved and, and making savings on, uh, therefore, on labour and also diesel. You know, our tractor hours are down. We use probably 60% of the diesel that we used to, for example. Um, best of all, though, I think is probably in not, not you know, I'm not saying we're getting better yields, but I think we're slightly more consistent than we used to be. Uh, and in those dry years, when we compare our yields uh, to our near neighbours, we have a sort of discussion group. It just looks like our crops have held on a bit longer. And in those really tricky years, you know, they're less affected than other people's crops are. And so that, that to me, is very encouraging because that was really the, the reason we set out down this route. So in terms of uh, productivity, you you've not lost any, not really gained any, but you're more consistent. Is that what you... You're saying productivity uh, in in terms of output. Yes. In terms of output. Yes. Uh, yes. It's it's probably pretty similar. Yeah. Pretty similar. Yeah. Um, but in terms of profitability, with these extra sources of income from uh, government funds and uh, lower uh, input costs. Yeah. So has it improved? Yes. And certainly, with the sort of new announcements that have been made, that'll definitely push us into a more profitable situation. I, I mean, prior to that, yes, we were better off because because of that reduction in overhead costs. Um, but this is just going to, you know, really, really enhance it. So um, there's nothing to lose, really. And a really important uh, factor as well as resilience to climate change. Um, because as we know, uh, you mentioned already a couple of times, the, the uh, rainfall might be much more erratic now, sometimes very heavy rainfall, sometimes longer yeah. periods of drought and having uh, this kind of system is more resilient. Yeah. Um, but also uh, resilience to future change in costs if you're depending on fossil fuel. Mm. Chemical fertilizer is also very uh, fossil fuel yes, uh, intensive. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, have you seen these costs change a lot like in recent times when we have a lot of uh, political uncertainty in certain countries and, and conflict? Hugely. I mean, there's, there's been massive inflation on the back of, um, well, I don't know, I suppose things started getting a bit exciting with COVID, in, you know, globally, and then it was in, you know, intensified more specifically uh, on the back of the. Russian Ukraine um, upsets, um, you know, causing nitrogen to more than double in price, um, and um, you know that really focuses the mind. So we're just coming out of a year where we paid a lot of money for fertilizer uh, during that crop cycle, uh, and you know, the, yeah, the, the margins are are not very clever. So it, it focuses the mind even more to think, well, you know, how can we reduce these inputs, and how can we keep pushing to make sure the efficiency of their use is is optimized so that we can we can get away with putting less on uh, both from an economic point of view and from a, an environmental um, benefit point of view so um, yeah um, you know the less inputs we have to use then the more what the more self-sufficient uh, and the more sustainable we're going to be so it's um, you know it's just sort of 
brings a more exciting element to crop production rather than just sort of going through the through the same processes each year. That's what I find so encouraging and interesting about uh, this whole uh, regenerative movement or agroecological movement. There's different terms for it. It's the fact that it seems to be it seems to be working quite well. It seems to me to be making farms uh, more resistant, more resilient, less dependent on global markets. Uh, and so it's, it seems to be a pretty interesting uh, solution to, to protect our food systems in the, in the coming decades. I think so, yes, yeah. Um, and um, I'm happy that's the route we've gone down and, and we'll hopefully you know, keep... We've got, we've got a long way to go and there's a lot of scope to, to keep improving and uh, that's where my focus will be. I'd like to mention the sponsor of this podcast, Soil Capital. It's a company that helps farmers trans transition to more regenerative practices and get rewarded for their efforts through carbon payments. Uh, Andrew, you're part of the Soil Capital program. Could you explain how it works? Sure. So um, we've been with Soil Capital for about, th it's been about three years since we signed up with them. And so we were beginning to recognize that um, you know, there's a demand um for carbon if you like um and uh we we latched onto the fact that um they're able to quantify um just on purely on an, an annual basis those beneficial things that we're doing that effectively um ensure we're not releasing as as much carbon as as a more conventional system Um, and so it very simply looks at what's going on in each field each year and, and making a calculation on, on what, is, what is held. So the courtesy of, of having a, a more diverse rotation nowadays and, and courtesy of having some cover cropping, uh, one of the big things is, is the fact that we're not using tillage anymore. So that, that's very helpful in the equation. Um, trying to reduce our nitrogen use, bringing in a little bit of organic matter in our system that adds to adds adds to the adds to the sums, and so ultimately, um, on average, over the last couple of years, we've they've calculated that um, we're sequestering about two and a half tons of carbon per hectare, and that has a value to it because there's industries out there whose processes are the opposite and, and they need to offset that. And so we're very happy to have this tie-up with Soil Capital whereby they can they can accurately quantify and pay us for, for what we're sequestering and their system of, of insetting and using it within the in, in the industry sort of appeals and, um, um, you know, hopefully it's a win-win it's a for, for everyone. I read on your website that technology plays an increasingly important role on your farm, Uh, could you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, I suppose you know we are we're surrounded by technology, aren't we? And um, I guess the point where you 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 could be totally bamboozled by all the different options out there. But um, you know, I think we're sort of we're, we're sifting through what's genuinely helpful. We're using GPS on the tractors to accurately and efficiently steer up and down the fields sort of you know optimizing their efficiency and their minimizing their time and diesel use etc uh we're using more and more like satellite imagery to uh capture biomass maps and therefore um apply nutrients um spe more specifically where they're needed 
um, you know, we that same technology of the of the GPS is is creating the yield map, so we can analyze fields far better, and we can just be more specific about how to manage w- areas within each field to optimize their their output. Um, and there's much much more on the horizon. I mean, I mentioned the the robotic weeding earlier. Um, autonomous tractors which will sort of perhaps um, um, alleviate a labour shortage for example um, but then you go into other things like like different nitrogen products and how well they can be and how efficiently they can be taken into the plant and hopefully that will continue to improve and um, you know advances in, in all sorts of things genetic, plant genetics and you know this, we're just surrounded by innovation and, and opportunity so um, yeah there's there's a lot of exciting things for me and I dare say you know if my son comes into the industry it'll be a very different picture even in 10 years time to what it is now um, Do you think that by um, transitioning to this type of agriculture that takes care of the soil and ecosystem and brings in diversity um, you're making the idea of taking over this, this farm more desirable to your son. I th- I think so. Yes, there's there's more to it, which I think can only be positive and generate more interest. Um, it's just more rewarding, um, and I suppose from a from a purely commercial point of view, you know, I would suggest that a farm that is being managed regeneratively or in that kind of nature is going to increase in value more more than a conventional farm if you can prove for example that your your organic matter levels have gone from 2% to 6% that just inherently means that that ground is going to be more more productive and more efficient at, at producing crops and so the least i can do is hand over an asset which has those enhanced characteristics and that and that enhanced, enhanced potential and value um and you know hopefully they'll be keen to to take it on and take it further what's the most important lesson you've learned from working with the land that you'd like to pass on to future generation a bit more philosophical i think the biggest lesson is you're not in charge at all you know nature is in charge and um the, there was a period you know when I was very young, I suppose, the second half of the last century where it was just all about fighting it with, with artificial inputs and, and, and power and et cetera, where it worked for a bit, but I think it was to the detriment on the whole and soil quality declined and problems occurred and, and such like. Uh, And so it's more in my mind it's more about just understanding your your soil understanding your farm or your garden or whatever and 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 not forcing it sort of you know listening to what nature's telling you and and reacting accordingly so that you're working more in harmony and i think that's probably in the long term going to be going to be far more rewarding That's a, a beautiful way to to see it. Uh, you're not in charge. Nature is in charge, and, and your role is more to to observe and listen to nature and try and help it along, exactly, uh, rather yeah. than force it in directions that it doesn't want to go in. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the most common misconception about regenerative agriculture you encounter, and how do you respond to it? The thing, one one thing you hear a lot is it it won't work on my soil. 
I, I don't pretend that, you know, we don't have the trickiest soils. We've probably had a, a, a pretty reliable starting point to, to go down this route. Um, but, you know, the harder you research it, and I did a quite a lot of research um, before we started, you know, it, there are very good cases in, in a whole range of, of soil types, a whole range of rainfall um, extremes, uh, and people people can make it work. So, um, you know, if it's not working on a heavy soil, it's perhaps because it isn't adequately drained and, and you're overlooking, you know, one of the fundamentals of, 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 of farming, I suppose. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, it's easy to make excuses, but uh, you know, quite often they can, you know, they can be overcome, and and hopefully shouldn't hold people back. Andrew, this has been a really interesting conversation. I've learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much for your time and for uh, having me here at Hyde Farm. It's been a pleasure. No, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Mm-hmm.